वेलकम टू सिंटॉक द सिंटॉक इज अराउंड द टेबल टुडे डिस्कस द मैजिक ऑफ मेकिंग विल थिंक अबाउट मेकिंग इन अ जनरल सेंस वाइल वंडरिंग वॉट कैन एंड कैनॉट बी मेड एंड वाई वॉट प्रोसीड्स मेकिंग हाउ कैन ओपन स्पेस एंड एम्टीनेस बी क्रिएटेड वॉट रोल डू मटीरियल्स प्ले when everyone makes why are only some special might minimalism be deceptively expensive is magic created by creating new relationships why is there an oscillation between excess and less over time in various realms why do isomers exist what is worth making what is the relationship between architecture and cinema and would alchemy be a realized possibility in the distant future we are pleased and privileged to have three sin talkers with us here today professor kazi ashraf he is working at the intersection of architecture landscape and theory After teaching in various universities in the US, uh, Professor Ashraf is now the director at Bengal Institute in Dhaka. Professor K P Jayashankar, he is a media educator, producer and a researcher. He has been with TIS in Mumbai for about 30 years. And Professor Elwathingal Jemis, he teaches quantum chemistry at ISC in Bangalore. So Jemis why don't we set the ball rolling with you uh, maybe at a somewhat unusual place um uh, whether molecules can be made if you just pick a molecule out or a molecular formula out of a chemistry textbook can you just make it at will uh, what can be made what cannot be made and does everything that exists around us and if you know the molecular formula for it and we understand that it's not as straightforward as that uh, why don't we go to the molecular level to ask this question of what can and cannot be made and why Yes when it comes to molecules it is always possible to see that uh, something that is already made we can make again mm-hmm. something that is not made one has to decide whether it is possible looking at both the kinetics and the thermodynamics mm-hmm. which means whether it can be made at all and what is the path leading to it mm-hmm. uh, often, so the path is the kinetics the path is the kinetics right so what happens is that in many instances we actually can design ways to reach to the molecule that we have in mind but sometimes despite the best planning we may not reach there uh-huh. so what can be made in principle everything uh, but in practice each individual molecule we have to analyze and the path towards it and the path is not unique we can start from different combinations of uh, smaller fragments and design the path some of that might be easily possible some others may not be and some very elegant paths are the shortest among the possible ones and why is that it's because uh, what we call as atom economy as well as energy economy mm-hmm. atom economy means minimum number of atoms are shifted around right and we get the final one 
Right. The energy economy is the process of making it shouldn't take a lot of outside energy to get there. Right. So the two together, you get the uh, shortest and best combination of the paths. Right. Uh, so we say it is the elegant one. Uh, elegant is often also described as beautiful. <laughs> That's interesting. And when, when if, if, is there a way of characterizing what can and cannot be made? It That's... may be asking uh, too much as a generalization. Mm. I would say, in general, what people had initially thought as uh, impossible has been made after 30 years. Such as what? Uh, like the molecule, I can give an ex- a specific Please. example. Let's take cubane. Eight cubane. Years of, uh, cubane. Mm-hmm. It's a uh, molecule with uh, eight carbon atoms and eight hydrogens. At one point, people never thought it can be made in the laboratory. That's the elder brother of benzene. Uh, it's the uh, it's the elder brother in the sense which it has two more uh, carbons and two more hydrogens, but one which is uh, like on the top of the Everest, so high in uh, energy that it is hard to touch. I see. But it has been made. Right. So, right. Uh, but is it is it intrinsically unstable? Intrinsically unstable, but it's like uh, putting a tiger in a cage. Mm-hmm. If you can break it out, you know, it will be so much of energy coming out. Uh, so tiger in a cage is uh, often used as a description of that kind of a molecule. That's interesting. And equally, there must be situations and molecules which are straightforward and trivial to make. Yes. If Such one, as what? So what would be the opposite of cubane in, in, if in I, this context? If I just break two bonds even in this mm-hmm. cubane, it gives another isomer. Right. Uh, another way of arranging the same atoms, pretty stable and more easily made. So, so isomers themselves have this unusual uh, difficulty. Something would be, you know, unapproachable, something that is uh, quite easily accessible out of the same number of atoms, same kind and same number of the atoms. Interesting, interesting. And there's some good ideas there which we'll get back to uh, Jemis as we go along. Uh, Kazi, if we just think of the architectural context, uh, and of course, we, for all practical purposes, live at the macroscopic levels and make buildings and spaces in, in various ways. What what does making mean to you as an architectural theorist, as an architect? I mean, if the molecular component, you see that as a, a microscopic way of sure. dealing with things. I wouldn't call architecture as macroscopic. Okay. <laughs> I mean, there's the whole universe out there which is macroscopic. In fact, that's what architecture does. Mm-hmm. It mediates between the microscopic and the uh, macroscopic. Why know? do you say that? Uh, because, you know, we, we um, that's as, as humans, existentially and psychologically, we have to do this. So for me, architecture is not just a utilitarian things, which it is at the most basic shelter from this and that. Mm-hmm. But we must, like, you know, make sense of where we are and you, even the first human, when we don't know in the primordial time, put a stake on the ground, um, kind of carving an address, so to speak, in this right. past university, he or she mediated between his own sort of or her uh, individual body and this sort of vast universe. So architecture in that sense is mediatory and... Um, it's the, you know, the in-between. Some kind of zonal sense-making. Yes, yes, that's yeah. what architecture does. And that's why you, it goes back to the question that you asked. And that's why we do architecture. We make architecture to mediate mm-hmm. between myself and this vast universe, which I have no clue of. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I was intrigued by the question that you placed to uh, Chemis, yeah. you know, which is like, you know, can you make molecules? Right. Um, I mean, it, it's, you know, and I'm thinking of that... Uh, 
And I'm thinking of that question because do we make or do we um, rearrange? I mean, that's mm. a vital question because, mm. you know, your question implied that you conjure things out of nothing. Right. Molecules or what That you start you. with ingredients and just have to rearrange right, them. Right, where or... the ingredients form. You know, I mean, that's the basic thing with architecture also. It's constantly a mediation of one form or another. Right. Uh, whether it's strikingly mediatory or it's like mid-level mediation. But know? is there something before making? Um, yes, thinking. Mm-hmm. Thinking, and you just you just don't go out and make. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what in architecture uh, or in sort of any artistic practice or even say uh, technological practice, uh, making is preceded by thinking. Whether you think subconsciously or very consciously, that's a different thing. So, if you make a tall building, and yes. which which is kind of a commonsensical part of our consciousness today, yes, it would have been an idea at some stage. Of course, you know, even that that primitive person I mentioned putting a stake on the ground, he or she thought right. very intuitively or otherwise, you know. I mean, so is the idea which precedes making. And then uh, this is something that Alberti, who was a Renaissance architect, very well known. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, he made that distinction, but it goes back to, you know, ancient Greek philosophy and, you know, uh, this idea of, this idea of idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, unless the idea gets translated, it doesn't mean anything. Right. Uh, and the, the and the the rigor and the method of the translation gets gets you what you want. So there is a technical side to it. Yes, that's technique. That's it's technique. The fabrication, right, of the idea. So it's not just poesis. No, right. Yeah. So uh, uh, the idea, you know, in, in the Platonic sense, as you know, that it's um, it's a stable thing. It's an eternal thing. Uh, but it doesn't have specific. You know, there's the idea of the chair, and there's so many chairs already in this room. Right. Um, but right. you know, when the idea gets translated, it has to be translated by choices you make, choices of the material, choices of the texture, choices of color. I mean, you must for the, the first choice that you have to make it's a material choice. But, and does this question of choice resonate with you at all, Jemis? Do you make choices uh, in what you do, or it's really, a, uh, you know, what I mean? Yeah, I think the choices are uh, made at every point, uh, whether it is the classical synthesis of a large molecule which is found in nature, mm-hmm. we would like to make it. So what's the nature of a choice in it's your context a, yeah. as a chemist? One looks, yeah, Especially in this particular context, when we have a large molecule, we have to see, in fact, uh, uh, it's almost the antithesis of synthesis. Uh, chemists call it as a retrosynthetic analysis. Mm-hmm. We have a large molecule, we take it into smaller parts mm-hmm. and then see which combination of the smaller parts that one should begin with so that it is easier to get to the final one. You know, unlike... So then you're solving for economy and efficiency and some of those factors. Yes. So you're solving for a path. Yeah, not only solving for a path, uh, but the path that uh, uh, that would relate to accessible starting materials. Right. Starting molecules. That's a great point. Right. We have to have this, you know, accessible ones. You don't have all the ingredients you may want. That's right. That's one. Then you would make the ingredients themselves. Mm. Uh, but the other thing is that we don't have a handle to hold the atoms or the molecules and put them together. Yeah. <laughs> we have to put them someplace, whether it is gas, liquid or uh, f- solid phase, and hope that with this external uh, stimuli, whether it is heat or uh, whether it is uh, radiation you of light. You want to introduce uh, that contingency, it should go there. That is there. right. And right. then it should happen. We have to just stand up, stand out and wait. There is no uh, so way should, make it. It should happen. Right. I mean, I, I want to ask you then this, that in, in your field, I mean, do you already start from a material platform? 
and then it is one kind of transformation or rearrangement or another. It is a rearrangement if it is uh, only an isomer that we are making from another molecule already existing. Right. It will be a synthesis when we have uh, smaller units brought together to make larger ones. New bonds are formed from two different ones. And except when we say it is formed, we leave it to nature to make it happen. We do not have a way to say, bring it and make it, you know, like two pillars have to be put one on the top of the other. We don't have that choice. Right. But uh, the atomic way of handling it is just beginning to happen, where we can put one atom carefully on the other. You know, like what uh, Feynman had talked about, there is a lot of space in the bottom. At the nanoscale. At the nanoscale. That's just beginning. But as a commercial uh, entity, it is still not available. We have to put things together and hope that they will form the new bonds. We'll get to this question, Jemis, because uh, of whether it might be possible in the long run. But as we think of this, Jayashankar, we've spoken about the question of choices. We've spoken about the question of contingency at some level, the question of ingredients. And of course, the way one makes films is different from the way one makes buildings or conceives of them or makes molecules or conceives of them. Um, same question, what is making for you and what's the nature of choices, uh, both as a filmmaker yourself and as as whatever filmmakers do more generally? Mm-hmm. As a filmmaker who's kind of works with narratives, mm-hmm. which are ephemeral, mm-hmm. they're not material in some sense. Uh, right. Uh, so what what we I mean I would uh, try to uh, I would I, I would like to foreground the idea of curating, mm-hmm. rearranging mm-hmm. relationships. So it's uh, yeah. so when you say curating, you mean selecting, rearranging, creating, establishing relationships, yeah. things like that. So I would like to use this occasion to kind of demystify this idea of maker. Uh. A maker <laughs> is somebody who kind of curates, puts them together, dialogues with others. And, you know, when I'm making something, it's uh, uh, I'm actually kind of bringing into that process a constellation of experiences. Right. It could be an experience of having seen a painting, having read a text, or having have a physical encounter. So the whole lot of range of experiences become that horizon when that making happens. And, so you're uh, refusing to be the subject of that Absolutely, because that kind, of, that kind of a discourse or author-centric discourse has wreaked a lot of violence. <laughs> Why do you say that? Because, you know, if you were to look at this whole author-centric discourse, which is kind of comes from the enlightenment tradition of Renaissance, mm. where the man becomes the center of the universe the Renaissance and around and which all discourses are formed, which you know has kind of, uh, so to, uh, according to whose gaze, the whole world is ordered. And you would go to the extent of calling that flawed? I would say I would think it's a, it's it's a kind of a political choice that has kind of <laughs> have a lot of far-reaching consequences in our lives. In the sense that I think we need to, uh, I mean, many of the interesting traditions within European and other uh, pre-modern traditions have always kind of uh, thought of the subject as something that needs to be kind of edged out of the centre of discourse. Right, right, right. But are there instances when? a specific subject or a sub- specific maker, however demystified, is able to do a better job of making better within quotes and yeah, small d- letters and everything, um, is able to do a better job of making than what might otherwise be possible? It's, sort of a, question of, it's a question where, you know, as a maker, one yeah. is constantly reorganizing things. Yeah. And there is an apparent sense of, I mean, apparent feeling of control 
in this process. But it's it's fictitious in the sense that you constantly, I mean, uh, bringing together things which has already been made. And, you know, there is a lot of joy and pleasure in actually bringing these together. So what is new in that context, Jashankar? I mean, because... Because, because there, the, there, there are... There, are landmark occasions, right? And there are landmark films, there are landmark, which which maybe are distinct, maybe not entirely, but largely to films that may have appeared before and, and so on and so on. Would you agree with that? Or do you think it's a, some a little bit of a polemical political act again? No, the, the narratives are, you know, I mean, it's you, you work with finite elements, but the end product of a system of meaning is, is amazingly complex. Mm. Now, for example, there is an interesting... Uh, machine that uh, George Gamow uh, in 1, 2, 3, Infinity talks about. Right. It's a machine with 26 alphabets. Uh-huh. It's a counter. You keep <laughs> on turning it and it prints all the lines. Right. So the first line would be 26 A's. Right. And the second line would be 25 A's and a B. Yeah. So you're working with this 26. But what he's saying is that if you did all that right. to the end of that process, you would have everything that is written and everything that is ever going to be written. What's interesting about cinema, actually, I mean, compared to, say, what uh, Chemist does <laughs> and we do, um, cinema has to be made. Architecture can be found, and the elements of uh, molecules are all there, out there. Yeah, but it is not as simple, I feel. Okay. Uh, no, but I was going to say that cinema has to be actually made, has to be produced, has to be conceived. It has it's, to be mediated. Uh, no, I mean, it's not in the realm of things that we find in nature, so to speak. Um, and so th- and there has to and be even an ag- nature agency. Nature makes choices, Kazi. Nature, of course, nature does make choices. Uh, but I'm I'm saying that uh, then cinema has to be conceived, has to be choreographed. You know, if you I, and in there, there may be co-making. It not necessarily be one person making the film. You know, there could be a collective or what have you. But it, uh, what I'm thinking is that that even compared to architecture, that cinema has to be conceived and, you know, the agency is far more stronger than any other field that I can think of. So what's the nature of your choices, Jayashankar? I'll go back to that question. I I think your point has been made and we understand that. I think we understand the meaning of what you're saying. Um, So when you're behind your camera, when you're on the drawing board, coming up with a script and so on, there are obviously many technical subparts. What is the nature of your choices? Do the narratives have sub-ingredients as well, and it's a process of rearranging. What do you discard? What do you choose? What do you sequence? No, cinematic narrative is when you construct a meaning out of various elements that you put together. And cinema has also this very interesting kind of lineage where it kind of can take in various other art forms into it. So it's truly an art form that is, belongs to us. It, it has a little bit of physics, a little bit of chemistry, a little bit of <laughs> literature, a little bit of music, architecture, art. So it's right. a kind of, it's by its very nature. It's a, it's a little bit of a meta form. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a composite uh, entity. And it is also what is interesting about f- cinema is that probably it's ephemeral in its very nature. You think of it as an audio-visual medium, but probably as many interesting filmmakers have pointed out it's actually a temporal medium it just kind of it has it kind of enacts itself in time just so for example time. absolutely and rhythm right so in, in spite of the feeling that it is something that you control orchestrate it actually is what do you a, mean by rhythm uh, I'm, I'm, I'm borrowing it from Tarkovsky. He says sure. uh, there is a pace, uh, there's a rhythm which enacts itself. Each frame kind of uh, I'm not doing it verbatim but it, each frame kind of 
brings is rhythm and time passing though it's a static frame uh, but time passes at different speeds precisely so so it's a temporal medium and somebody like money call for example has spoke about we think of cinema as an audio visual medium which is more physical but uh, it is actually a temporal medium so if uh, cinema is what you just mentioned is a um, temporal medium temporal medium quickening or work, uh, maybe your material is actually time. quickening or you know speeding up or not speeding up or slowing time in space and you know, there's just there's just not time you know it's enacted in space that's what we do in architecture also and in fact there but is do you an, do that with space yes of course yes you do, yes. You do the almost the same with space same you know you actually c- construct movement through spaces so how do you how do you so what's the equivalent of speeding time for space you could do that you can actually create some kind of thresholds whereby you can actually literally speed up mo- movement or you can actually have the sensation of speeding up movement and how you see distant things and foreground and middle ground and distant ground you know you could ar- articulate that and so there's a kind of a lot of interplay between cinematic modes of experience in architecture and the other way around hmm and is there if we go to the molecular action gems um and if 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 a certain reaction has 14 steps obviously not all of them take the same amount of time right um is 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 there a certain kind of rhythm at work there as well of course you know one has to be careful about fa- false analogies here um uh, the, just asking the the time uh, could be controlled in some fashion you know one can accelerate uh, with uh, some extra energy given uh, in many cases we can even decelerate by lowering the temperature uh, but what is difficult is that uh, there are some steps which couldn't be accelerated and if you try to accelerate it uh, something breaks down a bond right. is broken and we don't have the same molecule again so we have to start all over again but what i find uh, you know uh, jayshankar's idea of uh, we have an end and uh, we can reach there in many different ways and uh, some approaches that people make are Uh, more beautiful than others uh, you know in chemistry also like masterpieces of movies uh, stand out there are masterpieces of uh, synthetic uh, approaches to a natural product right like woodward's <laughs> synthesis of vitamin b12 you know synthesized first time it's right. available as a natural product but synthesized first time is treated as a masterpiece in the world of synthesis why because first it was very complex mm-hmm. second many people attempted and didn't make it mm-hmm. third the approach that he had selected woodward had selected was not thought of by anyone else even though it was there for the asking it was just was it just ingenious or it was, there is was it, was it tough? imagination it was an imagination that occurred to him alone hmm see others didn't just think about it even though uh, so what was the core if just boring in a little deeper on that james what was the core move there the core move was the ability of woodward i i just bring in the name again sure. woodward to assimilate all that is known so far in organic synthesis in his head mm-hmm. turn it up and then he could visualize look there are many opportunities to reach there but this one might actually make it right it is doable in the conditions that are there in the lab uh, when he was doing it in the 60s we did not have a computerized uh, retrosynthetic analysis or computational drug design kind of pathways right right which are now available so you couldn't have tested it analytically 
That's right. So there is an element That's of right. insight which yeah, you have to pick exactly. that. Exactly. It came from the experience of knowing everything and, and synthesizing it in the mind and say, okay, this is the approach that might work. So at the technical level, Jashankar, what does experience give a filmmaker? I understand it's a general question. The experiential component of a filmmaking. What does experience give to a filmmaker? So if there's an experienced filmmaker who, let's say, like in the case of vitamin B12, um, what is one able to do, which which a relatively rookie filmmaker may not be able to do? I wouldn't want to make that hierarchy, you know, That's uh, stick. Fine. But sure. I, I would think that, you know, experience is, uh, is, the, is the way in which you kind of realize what is possible. So what's your tool of speeding up time? Uh, tool of speeding of time, you know, the, the, the way you construct a scene. Mm-hmm. So you, I mean, in real time and cinematic drama, two different experiences. Right. Real time takes its own and it's much faster, but a screen time is, you know, much more intense and complex. Mm-hmm. So, uh, for example, what happens in a minute in a real time uh, on a screen is a long time. Mm-hmm. So you constantly working with time. And in that sense, uh, it's also, I mean, for me, the film is a parable for human existence in the sense. Mm-hmm. We are, we are, most important thing about our existence is temporality. Mm-hmm. You kind of, it's, you're a, just a, a pause or a kind of a gap between life and death, so to speak. So it's a kind of a temporal and we constantly can only move in one direction. Human experiences are experiences that are cumulative. You can't undo, you can't deny anything. It's just something, it's an encounter that is kind of, uh, is in a direction which is uh, only can be mapped through its own temporality. Are you saying that it's a reproduction of life? Or a representation of life? I would think it's the closest that, you know, it kind of, uh, uh, closest uh, lesson, I mean, the kind of parable that kind of uh, gives you a clue as to how probably life is. And then hence, I mean, for me personally, I use a cinematic experience to kind of question the, uh, or or kind of assert the finitude of me as a maker. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, that leads to a second question, if I may, that why must we do this? Why must we represent what is already life? I mean, is cinema is a mode of like stalling, uh, taking a pause and reflecting. Uh, why should we do this? And I'm basically, why should humans uh, pause and uh, do this? Making sounds in cinema, I mean, in fact, amongst the three of us, if I may say so, that, you know, cinema... Yeah, the you word making. That I've said that before. Closely. Close, closely, cinema is about making. I mean, you're a cinema maker, and we've been saying that. Uh, we didn't say molecule maker. I, <laughs> and we didn't say building maker. We have given that up a long sure. time ago. So I think that word making is really uh, very critical here. Why do I make? I mean, I, I, I mean, uh, if I may be very, uh, if I could be very specific, for example, when you work with documentary film, that's the area that I work with. Sure. You are constantly, uh, it's not, it's very different from fiction filmmaking because you work with material that's already, uh, I mean, you don't kind of sure. intervene so much. You are working with material that's already there. As Hitchcock put it uh, in a, in a feature film, uh, the director's God, mm-hmm. and here God is the director. So, <laughs> so you begin to kind of. So who's know, the director then? So in, in the documentary filmmaker. 
अभी इस, 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 इस चांस एनकाउंटर इट इज अ काइंड ऑफ द आइडिया फॉर एग्जाम्पल ब्रेस ऑन टॉक्स अबाउट दिस आइडिया ऑफ ग्रेस सो समाइम्स थिंग्स हैपन इन स्पाइट ऑफ योर बिलिंग एंड डूइंग and then you constantly reorganizing at the time of editing curating making sense making so a pattern essentially a hopeful person hope, ho- hoping that grace happens chance happens something beautiful happens i mean not necessarily beautiful but you know you constantly working with uh, uncertainties all right. the time and you know it's not that uh, as mesels put it it's not that you will get what you like but you may have to like what you get right but there is there a feeling of helplessness uh, along with that uncertainty which you essentially deal with because jebus seems to experience something similar um, because you can't really touch the molecules as you were pointing out a while ago um, and you maybe at some level jashankari don't even know what you want precisely because maybe you don't exactly want something precisely yeah. so uh, i'll return to the mic the started of this whole idea of author author is a, is a is a fiction right which is kind of has been you uh, know in a certain kind of discourses post enlightenment which needs to be questioned so what so, is a helpful concept in the place of an author so i'm not a i'm not a helpless that's what a curator would be a more interesting idea right curator who works with other texts right uh, you work with uh, uh, and one text is not singular but it's actually uh, speaking to very many other texts right you know when right. you for example duzomb takes a uh mona lisa yeah and the mustache to it yeah he's speaking to a whole lot of tradition so yeah at one level then he erases the mustache and says shaved right then it's yet another <laughs> so they i mean unless you are uh, inserted into this whole intertextuality of these uh, uh texts you don't make sense of it do you feel like a curator do architects feel like a curator kazi i mean it could be a curator but it is that's also a choice and the individual architects because there's a range of things that an architect can do mm-hmm. he or she can be godlike <laughs> uh, and in that sense you know the word magic can be brought in you know right. and that's a very ancient tradition perhaps at some point we need to you know uh, deconstruct deconstruct the word magic not so much making why did right. you say magic of making but at the other end um in the professional way we have been trained as architects now coming from the renaissance this sort of individual sort of the the artist the intellectual the and that comes from that period right previously you know you were part of a guild you know and buildings were built temples were built you don't know who the the so called architect was you know the priest was there leading and all that But so what's the what's the factual answer there must have been no master planner uh in most cases uh, prior to the renaissance we don't know names you know i mean some cases we do but mm-hmm. they were actually i would call them choreographer right curator actually if you like then the architect but the architect is a very sort of post renaissance modern concept and we have inherited that all around and then and now after the inheritance some of us are trying to kind of go beyond that but what and, i find beautiful about architecture kazi and correct me if you think this is wrong there has to be an element of predetermination to architecture you can't just turn up and see what happens Uh, no no because you know there's a deeply social aspect involved here right. there are people who are going to be inhabiting the building you know right. you and, and it's not a solo an, act in most cases in, in most cases it's not a solo act even if you're doing a building and you have this sort of star architect doing this but there are other people who are involved it has to be built by a whole range of people crew you know and it it is a cooperative thing 
Right. Even though there may be one person designated as the architect. But what I was saying is that now, it, you know, and there may in many cases, uh, socially obligated architects, they go and I, I describe them as embedded architects. They live in a community and they kind of try to uh, engender what is possible with the community. I mean, that would be a cooperative way of doing things. And that's also possible. So what I'm saying is that there's a range of operations and depending on in which direction you're obligated to in the range of things from the aesthetic to the social, you make a choice and you do as you like. And is there a largely aesthetic uh, building? Which is primarily aesthetic? <laughs> Spectacular, I would say, not aesthetic. Because aesthetic, yeah. I would like to use that in a it good probably way. probably wears more in the direction of sculpture or Sculpture, something. yes. So spectacular sculpture. And that's what most architects in this particular economy are doing, <laughs> which is, I would like to say, to be avoided. Um, but then I think the other, the, the middle range is ethical, you know, that architects don't talk about that too much. Mm. But one element of the architectural practice has to be ethical. And I, I give it a Renaissance example because I like that. Right. In the Renaissance period, one word for building was edifice. Right. You know, I mean, ed- edificatario, you know, so it's a Latin word. Right. Um, why? Because when you go to that building, you're edified. Right. So it's about edification, not right. aesthetic appreciation or like you know basic utilitarian inhabitation. That's beautiful. But you you were are edified to be a better person, whether you become or not. That's a different thing, and you are provoked by the building to make a choice between virtue and vice. I love that actually because you know. Uh, yeah. So the, the way you kind of looked at the building, the way you went from one space to the other, you're actually released from a baser condition to a higher condition. Anyway, so that, that, is, that is magic. That's, that's magic. That's, that's really magic. Oh, right? But is that, is that something? No, I mean, I'm saying, let me say that, you know, yeah. uh, in our context that was conducted in, say, uh, stupas, and even in, say, mandala-based temples, right. you, know, you just didn't look at it and say, wow, what a great building. Right. No, you're supposed to be, if you're a particular practitioner of that group. There has to be something immeasurable yes, about it. You know, whether you call it magical or transformational, mm-hmm. the people who experience the spaces, they're supposed to be transformed. And you have to be trained to be transformed. You didn't get transformed <laughs> just by looking at it. You were transformed by participating in the ritual of that space. What does ritual have to do with that? Uh, architecture is all about ritual. I mean, Why it has it has now become spectacular. You just look at a building; that's it. Um, a building. So you're saying there's a specific mode of experiencing architecture? Yes, yes, yes. You know, and on all all cultures, each culture defined its tradition of experiencing that space, and we mm-hmm. do that through ritualistic way. We do that even now in our secular condition. We have rituals, sure. And buildings and spaces are houses for rituals more than anything else. Right. 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 Gee, I was just thinking, uh, you know, in some sense, life itself is a ritual. And when, <laughs> you know, and right. when uh, uh, someone like Larry Baker mm-hmm. uh, in Kerala uh, wanted to make the architecture a part of life itself, so that his architecture in many of the areas uh, will look as though if that architecture uh, building was not there, it may appear as though the natural scene is not complete. Hmm. Often buildings stand out, but his buildings merge with the landscape, landscape, landscape so that it appears as though this is necessary to be a part of the whole thing. Yeah, uh, oh, that's beautiful. I mean, so it is natural. Uh, as you said, ritual is uh, built in uh, into nature. And uh, what was missing, according to Larry Baker, for example, is added by him. 
So right. it's like a dream of Larry Baker, a very, very, uh, you know, seasoned dream because uh, not an unrealistic, unapproachable dream, but a dream that can be realized is actually made. And I call that magic, you know, when you do that. Yeah. I mean, I was just looking at the, uh, you know, just thinking about the word magic because, you know, uh, you brought it up with the title of this talk. Um, I mean, the original sort of reference to magic is um, the, the Magis of, you know, Persia. And the Greek looked upon them as this sort of, and they were basically priests mm. who could do powerful things, you know, who could do unnatural things, you know, you don't mm. find typically in nature. So they're powerful, forceful, and mighty. Mm. So there's that reference to magic. And uh, and I think in traditional cultures, you know, there's some elite group who could who could do that, and people looked up onto that, you know. And in 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 our situations, you know, the temple priests did that, you know, the the magical people, though, and whatever name you want to give them, shamans or you know, right. what have you. Right, 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 right. But there is also the black magic. How do you distinguish black magic from magic? Ah, that is the difficult thing. You know, I feel that uh, when magic follows the expected ethical lines. We just call it magic. When we get <laughs> when we get something where it is clearly against the rules, rules within codes of religion or whatever else, we call it black magic. What is black magic in chemistry? Uh, you know, black magic in chemistry perhaps could be connected to some extent to alchemy. Mm. Uh, because, you know, it was felt... At that time, you know, uh, centuries ago, millenniums ago, uh, that it was possible to convert anything base into gold. Element into gold. Uh, it's a far cry. Even today, we cannot. So you think that is essentially ethically problematic, or at least that's the sense uh, in no, which at we... that time when they were doing it, it was not because they actually believed that this is the right thing to do, and they had no evil intentions in that sense. They mm -hmm. actually were exploring, mm -hmm. but uh, the black magic that we hear of today. Uh, especially uh, in uh, places like, uh, you know, uh, we have a neighboring place in, in Trishur uh, where there is the Chatan Seva Madam. When we consider magic that is not following the rules, mm. that society expects, religions expect, traditions expect, then... But even, even these are ever-changing, aren't they? They change. Even the expectations are ever changing. They change. What we so things think may go from being black magic to magic and vice versa. It, it's possible, uh, but I guess we are going farther away from the sure uh, the, the magic the term that we used. You know the term that we were at least the way I understood. There is a magic uh, when uh, when someone makes a molecule that was tried by so many different people and couldn't make it. Right. And here is a chemist coming along and he could make it. Right. There is a magical touch. Right, right. Uh, it is true even in terms of the methods that are available, but only one student could make it, another student couldn't so right. far. So there is that magical touch in hands to mix things together. I'm sure it is there. Right. Would you say in a different way that the discovery of the atomic bomb is black magic in the modern sense? Uh, it... It, from it was an exercise in engineering. Rules. I mean, no, once you know fission, fusion. Yeah, but that was uh, that was uh, scientific. It was it was uh, methodically derived that this has to happen. There was no uh, intervention from anything else. Uh, the black magic has that uh, you know uh, uh, help from the devil. 
yes. kind of uh, you know implication that is interesting but tell me uh, if we go to the chemistry question the chemical question james of why is alchemy not possible why can't you just pick protons neutrons and electrons whatever atomic numbers you need and just create gold uh, yes um yeah. it's obviously a tantalizing it's another question that the gold market would crash but let's put that aside for a second why can't you just make gold when you feel like it even the initial step of it that is the uh, fusion mm. we have been trying hard even we have uh, a, a tokamak that we are trying hard in uh, gujarat uh, princeton has one the russia had its own just trying to put two atoms together to uh, to form a larger atom right uh, the energy involved in getting to put two atoms together to make a heavier atom is so high but if it is so high it also produces so much more later on right if that comes in so that is at the level of hydrogen and helium itself so getting all the way to gold is that much that's more right. that's precisely the problem hmm. uh, but we will reach there and once we get out of this dilemma when we get the uh, and you mean the word will seriously that's right then we really would uh, have all the energy that we need without any of the side effects uh, you know the fusion reactors are i mean i used to think or pre- the world used to think 40 years ago that in about 30 years we would make it <laughs> now they think another 25 years but we are not sure uh, so once that happens yes slowly we could uh, get there uh, so i think one 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 concept or motif that has come up repeatedly in what you've been saying james is energy and this this aspect of energy being a constraint of how much energy might be needed or how much energy might be released which is a not so desirable byproduct of sorts what are constraints for you jashankar i just wanted to return to this idea of magic if my may sure the idea that for example i was uh, you know one of the interesting ideas that i find useful in our work is the idea of reflexivity mm-hmm. so that it kind of the idea of that the process of construction is available to the audience when i make a film or particularly a documentary mm-hmm. it kind of fascinates me because it allows me to question various relationships this whole idea of agency the whole idea of curation what is transpires between this act of making so when when which is normally f- not available right because what i normally do is to tell people is act normally ignore <laughs> me as if my presence has to be obliterated for it to make sense to the The, the, audi- audience. the audience, thereby mystifying it, creating magic out of it. Whereas there is a process of construction at work. Right. There is a there is a camera here. There is a person who says, and there is an interaction that happens. In fact, I recently was talking to a group of students and asked them about this question of reflexivity. Give me an example. Mm-hmm. And surprisingly, one of them said magic, <laughs> because if you really knew what happens, the process of construction, the magic would ma- vanish. Right. Right. So the magic of making come from this whole mystification of agency and the author. Right. And try to create a sense of illusion where you as an audience has no access to it. The moment you realize what's at stake there, it becomes it doesn't so it no longer has any magic. It is an attempt by you as a director. So for example as a as a filmmaker, you know, there has been attempts to kind of uh uh to to bracket out this filmmaker's position and take away every little thing what that would kind of indicate that this is a construction at work a mic dipping into the frame or you know something that happens a blooper that happens right. and i'm delivering a, a 
when I'm you're recording, I cough. Right. You take it out because it kind of attracts your attention to the fact that it's being constructed. Right. So try to make it as a seamless document. So, for example, for me, magic is that moment where, you know, the process of construction is not available to the. And from uh, is not available, not available to the audience. So there's oh. then there's mystified, oh. but when you know what is, uh, and in fact you mentioned Laurie Baker. I was had the privilege of kind of documenting one of these projects uh, in Latour, which uh-huh. is there was an earthquake after the earthquake. After the earthquake, he was working in a so various architects were given spaces to work. I mean, various sponsors came in, uh, and they were working. Constructing these villages, reconstructing them, and Laurie Baker was kind of brought in by a well-known newspaper group in Kerala, and everyone had these grid iron pattern how to make them. Right, and uh, they would kind of make these houses, which are hundred houses in a row, and with roads <laughs> there. And the apparent uh, logic that they used was that they asked the villagers, "Do you want straight roads or curved roads?" And obviously, if anybody asked me that question, I would say straight, straight road. Please. I don't want to go. I'll go from A to B, <laughs> roundabout. So they use the logic to construct that. Whereas Laurie Baker, what he did was, uh, first of all, uh, the construction, the architectural practice there was uh, just uh, random rubbles, which are kind of, uh, you know, uh, placed on each other. Mm-hmm. And the surfaces look very neat, but inside there are r- rubble put inside. Mm-hmm. So when the earthquake happened, it actually delaminated and the whole thing fell down. Right. And the stones fell and killed people. Right. It's basically constructed with stones. Right. And so there were stones became kind of a yeah. demon, demonized kind of material. Yeah. Whereas Laurie Baker said stones have to be used and they will. he will use it up to the sill level. It right. cannot fall down and it has to be constructed in a particular way. Right. And he didn't have a plan. So he right. sat with villages, what do you, what do you like? What is a kind of an organic kind of structure that can emerge? And it did not, I mean, there was no timeline to it. He didn't start at a point with a with a plant that is chalked down and, you know, he went there. How and did it, it eventually turn out? It, didn't, it did not turn out because he tried to <laughs> abandon it. Because it did not, uh, the, the government won results in a particular time. So he didn't have a plan and he was sitting with the villagers, discussing with them what material to be used. And the villagers were very, I mean, some of them very adamant that we should not use stones at all. Yeah, yeah. And which is abundantly available there. And most of them kind of brought in, most of the houses there are made with concrete. So to give an example of... Mm-hmm. That particular act of making for him was an act of collaboration, an act of dialogue, and an act of participation. Well, Absolutely, and I would like to add to that. You know, I mean, not not in all cases in architecture it has to be that because there are kind of different kinds of architectural tasks. Mm-hmm. In Laurie Baker's case, it was a social project, you know, housing at for a group like that. Um, but I think what is most fundamental in architecture is materiality. It may sound very sort of you know elemental and crass, but I would like There's to no say, way to do without uh, it. Exactly. And I would like to say there is no magic in making. Mm-hmm. The magic, if there be, is in the experience. And sometimes it can in be controlled. In, ex- in, no, 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 in the experience of the experience of the people who are going to be inhabiting mm-hmm. that. You know, and mm-hmm. that goes for cinema and architecture also. I mean, sometimes the crafter, whether done as an author or collectively, they can persuade or they can prepare or they may anticipate the mm-hmm. experience of that thing, what we might call magic. We can use another word. Sure. Moved. We can be moved. Sure. Uh, and that can happen in the experience. But I wouldn't say that there is magic in making. Making in architecture is laborious. Yeah. 
Uh, it requires working with natural laws. You can't have brick floating and flying. Yeah. You can have an illusion of that. I mean, yeah. in cinema, perhaps it's easier to do that. <laughs> but in, in architecture, you can't have that. You know, we're just talking about that, you know, painting buildings you and building buildings. You can't make a building, building top to down. You can't make yes. a building top to down. You can you can paint a building from the top. You can just stop there and go and have a cup of tea. But in architecture, you can't do that. You have to go from the ground up. So you just have to follow these material, natural laws and material processes and the choice of material. So what are your constraints? Uh, those. Of course, natural laws is one. Those, right. And I mean, those are beautiful constraints, actually. I don't see them as constraints. You work with them. You know, humans have worked with them for whatever, 10,000 years. So, Kazi, uh, obviously, have there been theoretical slash conceptual landmarks that have gotten around some constraints, which were massive constraints 500 years ago, 1,000 years ago, 10 years ago? Doesn't matter. I mean, you know, if you if you think of materiality itself is mm-hmm. like among the various constraints, if mm-hmm. you'd like to use the word constraints, you know, mm-hmm. it could be seen as sort of the material that we work with. You know, it's not a constraint. It, it is the material. Right. So one is, say, materiality. Yeah. So there's one uh, line of persuasion or desire in architecture to dematerialize architecture. You can call it a conceit or what have you, that, you know, we you know we don't want this sort of material heaviness. We want to make it either lighter or minimize. Or make it invisible. Or make it invisible. Right. Uh, but then if you make it the whole thing invisible, what's the point? So in that case, you know, for that reason, I, I, I love a quote by Mies van der Rohe or his desire that I want to take my architecture to almost nothing. He didn't say, I I want to take my architecture to nothing. What would be the point of doing that? But you can get to that threshold of nothing and through through the real concrete, like, you know, material presence, you hint at, you represent the other. It's opposite. It's contrary. That's beautiful. Yeah. So what would an almost nothing building be like? Um, Well, you know, when glass came in, Mm. Glass seems such a magical material. You know, if you want to talk about a ma- ma- magical experience, glass was. Like this whole wall is glass, not just a little window. Right. Uh, and glass, as you know, that has both reflectivity, refractivity, and transparency. And right. depending on how light or shadow falls on it, it can have all that kind of conditions. Right. I think glass glass came to be the closest to dematerializing architecture. Right. But then, you know, and so there's a difference between what Mies tried to do in dematerializing architecture. Which is the tendency towards minimalism, in a way. That's when the discussion about minimalism started, you know, that actually to take architecture to its sort of extreme threshold where it's almost about to dissolve, but it doesn't. Is it, is it, is it an analogical desire of making the maker vanish or at least invisible in some way? Well, uh, yes and no, because you're not making the maker vanish, you are making the maid vanish. The maid vanish, yeah. I was, uh, I was just kind of add to this. I mean, I really appreciate what uh, uh, about architecture. Uh, the the idea that it's not my my quest. I mean, the 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 kind of point that I was trying to make is not make the. I get m- it. Make a vanish. Yes, I get but it. But question the location the of the maker. Yes. And of course, uh, when you talk, I mean, I teach semiology, for example. One of the things that I do, and one of the uh, issues there when you talk about language. Mm-hmm is that uh, it is compliance. Mm-hmm. In order to speak, uh, this is what the post-structural, those structural in order to play. speak, yeah. you, there is an act of repression. You comply because you kind of wrapped on your knuckle. That's not the right way to write. Right. And having learned it, 
you know, the idea of constraint, if I may, you have to learn. Right. Because you're constantly corrected, the act of repression, and any expression is preceded by the act of repression, which is strange. <laughs> so, so in order to speak a language, you need to be, but the language is such a, a discourse, it's such a large field. There's so many syntactic possibilities, like the gamma machine that I talked about. Right. It's infinite. Right. So when you, when you write, or like in, I mean, if you take architecture as a discourse or filmmaking as a discourse, there are very many ways of writing. Yeah. You can write a, a text for uh, uh, an operation, operating manual for that computer Recording. there. Yeah. Or you could write Zen. Yeah. Or you could write poetry. Yeah. So, you know, it is a discourse in which it's, if, you, if you were to take architecture as a, open, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a discourse, there are many ways in which you can write it. So the idea of compliance or there is a particular, uh, there are relationships, paradigmatic and syntagmatic relationships, which kind of, you know, uh, restrict the discourse, but at the same time, it's also liberating. Yeah. So the way you use it, uh, I mean, so I, I can I could give you cons concrete examples because language constantly surprises the user, though you have a sense that it is in, you're in control. It kind of constantly repositions you. Uh, so, for example, uh, my daughter once asked me uh, about death. What is death? So then I uh, told her, death is the apps. I mean absence of life or whatever I, I could tell her. And she wanted to know whether the, her stone that she had is going to die. So mm. I told her that only living things die. Mm. So she kept quiet for a while and asked me, so what's going to happen to a living room? <laughs> That's a good one. So, I mean, so the idea that, you know, it kind of surprised, I've never thought about the possibilities of living room dying. Sure. But of course, it could, living rooms don't die. But, I guess but obviously in a poetic discourse, living right. rooms can actually meet. Yeah, they do die. Living, living rooms, rooms do die. Do die. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, I, but I was going to sort of, you know, extend, Jashankar, what you were saying, um, that uh, in our times, we have adopted different critical modes of doing things. So we just don't make, we're also, we also make critically. Because we then apply various kinds of interrogation to what has been the history of that making. We are not just sort of continuing a lineage of things that has been done 100 years ago, 1,000 years ago. Uh, we just don't make pyramids anymore because we know the oppressive history behind a pyramid or even, say, temples or palaces and what have you. Uh, so uh, I think the question is... Uh, um, you know, you can see various sort of palatial buildings here in Bombay or in other cities, you know, putting up sort of pseudo-Greek elements of what you like, you know, and they're coming from Greek temples. But Greek temples, as well as many temples, have a history of violence. It's a ritualized violence, whether it's sacrifice or what have you, but right. we've forgotten the violence, you know, right. we've made it purely visual, spectacular things. So, so what about the violence? Which is to say that all making is preceded by violence, you know, ritualistically or what have you. And we need to be aware of that. And yeah. architecture definitely has a history of that. You break ground to begin with. So as a filmmaker, I mean, uh, I would subscribe to this idea which Peter Wolin speaks about is that you have to co constantly question the materiality of the signifier. That means how you make it. What is the kind of images that you conjure up? And also, at the same time, bifocally, question the materiality of the social practice. 
the politics that you talked about. So when you, as an architect or as a filmmaker, at least as a filmmaker, one is constantly has this bifocal view of uh, revising the way in which that discourse is narrated, um, constructed at some level, uh, and also talking about the social practice, uh, praxis, uh, and a critique of that. And that's where uh, also the critiquing of the location of the filmmaker, the maker, is an equally important because it's always thought of as safe, given, uh, and you know, some somewhere this maker, some some somewhere this maker has been thought of as an omniscient being who right. kind of is in control. So right. the critique of that position, of the author, as a embedded in these social relationships of power and resistance, is important to kind of. Uh, talk about it. So there, that's but why. But you're depleting your own political currency, Jashankar, by doing that, aren't you? Yeah, that's important to kind of, you know, for most <laughs> interesting traditions in the world, spiritual or otherwise, actually question this whole idea of the maker, the subject. Right, right, right. Jemis, why don't we go to the question of materiality, which we've kind of touched upon a um, few times? Yeah, I think uh, it's interesting because it appears to me that makers of molecules, big, small, large, macro, polymers, are all materials that in many ways come to the help of the architect and the architect while making it you know helps the society to generate things and someone like Jay Shankar's watching from farther away what Khasi has made using the chemistry molecules that Which he has produced <laughs> could reflect on it and you know make uh, movies that move people yeah. It looks all a you know part of the larger picture that uh, that we have. Uh, obviously, there are molecules that are magical coming in now, where you you know uh, you paint the wall and uh, you suddenly see that uh, the wall looks different color at different times of the day if yeah. it is exposed to sunlight, mm. and the angle of that uh, d- uh, you know uh, incidence would make the change, or it produces uh, electricity, photovoltaic materials embedded in this. So materials as molecules uh, makers make it, are really part of the materialistic picture that you have. You have The flexibility increases with the architect. Yeah. Right. I'm just giving I mean, one you, example. You, you, I mean, in a way, you can't create experience without materials. Yes, that's right. Uh, but I, w- I would also like to add here, perhaps that's a big ingredient in what architects do, and perhaps all of us do in one way or another, is desire that, you know, society desire is manufactured. You know, I don't know where it is manufactured from. If it is manufactured in a spiritual way, well, all the best. But these days <laughs> in a liberal economy, we know where it's manufactured, then then we pursue it. So even a material production, a new material, is not innocent coming from you because there's investment has been made in research and what have you and which direction the production of the material will flow. And once a material, a new material or a rearranged material, it has to be translated before it goes into the market, so to speak, and which then is to be adopted in the marketplace by architects and what Mm -hmm. have you, uh, refracted by desire. Mm -hmm. So there's a whole process out here Mm -hmm. by which, you know, so no material is innocent, you know. I mean, you go to various cities, you know, that you can't have a building in exposed brick, no, because that's not part of the social desire, you know. (laughs) You want marble or what Mm -hmm. have you. So materials are not innocent things. They get refracted 
by social desire. So I think that's another part of it which we have to deal with. You know, whether you play with it, whether you go with it, or whether you resist it is a position, a choice that an architect has to make. No, that's very interesting. And obviously the whole question of desire is entirely linked to the question of experience. Why don't we spend the last five minutes uh, thinking about the future? And in this context, in the context of making and whether as a chemist or as a filmmaker or as an architect, and we understand that it's not like we have a lot of time, what might the future be like? Uh, what is the future of making? What's the future of the maker? Um, it's obviously, it's quite likely, Jashankar, that 200 years out, a lot of people would say what you're saying and they would all agree on it. And if you were to be around that time, you'd probably say the opposite, would you? For me, the most important question here is, which we discussed earlier, is the idea that everyone makes what makes some making special. Why is a hierarchy? So, uh, in fact, a friend of mine who works with Dalit women in making video, sure. uh, they are all illiterate women. Sure. And always narrate the story. And they can do video perfectly well, the filmmakers. Sure. Always narrate the story, which is my favorite story, if I may use Please. a couple of minutes. He says, there is a Dalit boatman and a Brahmin. Mm-hmm. And, the Bra- and they're crossing a river. And mm-hmm. the Brahmin asks the Dalit boatman, have you read this particular text? Mm-hmm. So Dalit, a Veda or scripture, the, the boatman <laughs> says, no, I haven't right. read it. So quarter of your life is mm-hmm. gone. Right. And then uh, yet another text, have you read this? The so boatman says, no, <laughs> half of your life is gone. Right. And there's a big storm and the boat <laughs> is going to sink. And the boatman asks the Brahmin, do you know how to swim? <laughs> Brahmin says, no, all your life is gone. <laughs> so this is kind of hierarchy. I mean, for example, what I'm trying to drive at is this whole idea of you know, when I make something or, you know, a chemist makes something, an architect makes, it's more hallowed. When a craft person or, you know, there are people who are in the so-called, uh, you know, hierarchically less powerful excluded, than... Excluded, market excluded. Yeah. When their making is seen as less than making. So we need to kind of also use this occasion to question. It's not just a maker, but when I say location of the maker needs to be questioned, one is also questioning certain kind of hierarchies. Sure. So what would the interest, what would an interesting next move be at a theoretical level to include the excluded or to not have no, so, so you categories should, you of You should kind of see that all making is enmeshed or embedded within relationships of power and resistance. Right, right. So right. I think that, I mean, uh, if I may quote Foucault, that's, that's the idea that you need to kind of throw your lot with transversal struggles, which kind of question these hierarchies. That's interesting. What is the future, James? Yeah, um, I feel that, you know, the molecule makers, the chemists uh, would really like to make materials uh, for a pre-decided property pre-decided property. If I wanted something uh, of this quality from the material. So when you say property, you mean things like transparency, hardness? Transparency, hardness, hardness uh, you know, whether it is uh, flexible, uh, resistance sure. to things. Uh, chemists with time, already beginning, chemists would, uh, with time would like to predict which are the materials that would have these desired properties and how to make them. And it is becoming more and more a uh, reality, but it will be far more uh, certain you know, in, in, in the future without any question. And that's what people are looking at. And that could be the magic of uh, future chemistry. Because that chemistry would start with desire. Uh, desire way, of start... the people. Desire mm. of everybody else, the architect and anyone else who would like to have a particular kind of material uh, of this particular set of properties. And chemists should be in a position to first 
computationally using statistical and quantum mechanics to predict whether such a thing is possible. Possible, and then to make it. Right, that is the challenge of the future, and it is moving on. I mean, to different levels, it has been successful, but not to the level that really people would like to have. And Jemis, even that journey from realizing that something is possible to actually making it has barriers. Huge barriers. It? Yes. So, are there instances today where you know that such and such molecule, such and such material is possible? but you just don't know how to make it. So clearly there must be many such open... Yeah, it's continuously, there are a large number of such systems. Uh, in fact, just one or two have just been made, which people thought should be possible, but has been tried many times, didn't succeed. But, you know, uh, it, it's continuously happening. Right. But these are small. It should be possible uh, to predict which ones can be made and then to go ahead and make it uh, as uh, we wanted. It's like the 3D printing in molecular right. scale. Right. right now, with materials of the ingredients, we can make 3D printing of anything. I mean, molecular motors and others are Molecular motors are just beginning. Just beginning. Just beginning. In fact, uh, the, you know, the last Nobel Prize sure. for the molecular motors, uh, in some sense, it is, uh, many chemists will say it is premature, but you know, in the sense that it is really, it is, <laughs> uh, I mean, the idea is nice, but for it to actually function and lead to this, it will take time. But the idea is there. Molecules that would, under different stimuli, propel itself in a particular direction is already there. Sure. And that's the one that got the prize this time. So how far are we from such a situation, uh, Jemis? 100 years, 200 years? Oh, no, no, much much less. Much, much less, less time. Oh, oh, that's nice. Time. You're an optimistic person. Oh, definitely. Much less time. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. We'll end with you, Kazi. Where are we? What's the future? What's the future of making... Architectural spaces, let's not reduce it to buildings. Uh, what's the future of making in general? Well, you know, you can think of it in two ways, or I think of it in two ways. Sure. One is the perennial task of architecture. So it really doesn't matter five years from now on, 500 years from now on. Right. Because we have seen the last 5,000 years, things haven't <laughs> changed much. Which is? The earth is still here. We still have to deal with the earth. And I don't mean just in an ethical way, but just as human beings traversing, walking on this earth and being earthlings. And we tend to forget that, you know, we are in this world, earthlings, we're in this biosphere, and we just have to deal with it. So we'll always have to start grounds up. Absolutely. You know, uh, things may appear to float. Maybe there's some new materials whereby things will do all that sort of thing. But that's... But materials won't beat gravity. I mean, they but, may be light, but it's not no, the but same sure, thing. Sure, sure. I mean, you can't know, defy gravity. Uh, yeah. I mean, even if it's a situation that seems like you're defying gravity, you're still dealing with gravity. You know, sure. so that will remain. So that's the perennial task of architecture, and some, uh, and in a social sense, I would call it the task of the life world. I mean, because the life world is here. You know, here right. we are. Right. Um, so that will not substantially change and what we about have to the second one? that. The second one, yes. So there are new sort of things that will crop up, creep up, new uh -huh. challenges and we uh -huh. have to take that on inventively based on the life world. Such as? as such as I think the sort of the um, uh, the new mode of the city for example. You know, I mean it's stunning buildings, spectacular standalone things that don't quite excite me that much and, and you know sure I see something or you know I may get involved in doing that but I think in our context in where we are the biggest challenge in the next sort of, it's already on, the challenge is on. How do we conceive our cities? Not in just as a kind of a physical artifact, which also we haven't really looked into, but as a social space, you know, uh, how things work. Uh, I think we, uh, this, our cities have become much more difficult 
much more in a topsy-turvy than it was, you know, what was 50 years ago. But is there a way of intervening at a top-down level? Uh, uh, it has level? to be kind of at, at multiple levels. I don't sure. think it's top-down. You know, it, it has to be at multiple levels. And you raise a good point. And perhaps I would like to add what Jay Shankar mentioned. Uh, and I would like to add co-making. It has to be co-making at different levels. Uh, a good friend of mine, Kabir, Khandakar Kabir, is a landscape architect. He's pretty well known, you know, he has been shown sure. in CNN documentary and all that. He teaches at a major university, but he decided to live in a slum right across the university. He lived in the slum, working with the community, just doing small things, sort of spreading a little germ of how you can make your sort of environment space beautiful. And he started by planting in a kind of, you know, in a very sort of crummy, rundown, um, sort of, you know, polluted place. And it just blossomed into Planting. a garden. Plant, you know, real plants, real you know, plants. so just real plants. You sure. don't have to do too much. And he made a platform al- along a lake where there was the big slum sure. and children just gathered there. So a number of things happening. He worked with slum children, made them a place for them to gather, and he worked with plants. And he called it co-making at two levels, co-making with the community and co-making with nature. So probably all of us have no option. All of us are to be makers at some level or the other. Well, uh, I, I mean, a world with only consumers is is, yeah, is but, a funny world. Yeah, but the kind of making that we have seen in the last 50 years or so has kind of resulted in a lot of catastrophe around us, you know, from Anthropocene to, you know, yeah. the, how, how we kind of uh, really uh, worked That's on this. centralized manufacturing. No, geog- yes, precisely. Yeah. You know, the kind of sustainable making that you right. talked about for right. people. I think it's interesting because, you know, in the last 20 years or so, maybe more, we have been making for consumption purposes. So making for consumption and that has to be resisted or even gotten rid of <laughs> towards something else. Thank Which you. Is I think that's a great note to end this on. Thanks to all of you for making it and we look forward to having you soon again. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank 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 you.